Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world. Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at AsianHustleNetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Richard Wong. Richard is the CEO of the global educational technology company, Coding Dojo, a venture partner with NextGen Venture Partners, and serves as a committee member for various future of work and education-focused leadership councils. Richard holds an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management, is an EY Entrepreneur of the Year 2021 Pacific Northwest Award winner, and was recently included in Puget Sound Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Awards. Richard, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, glad to be here. Richard, you put us to shame. You you accomplished so much already. (laughs) Oh man, you know, it's it's the Asian curse, right? You just have to overachieve. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not Asian curse. It's Asian blessing. <laughs> I guess both. So Richard, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? What was your upbringing like? You want to hear more about your story? Yeah, sure. You know, I grew up in China and came here when I was uh, 13 years old. And where I grew up in China is Northern China. It's called uh, Dalian. It's a coastal city. And I came here when I was 13 and, you know, kind of bounced around. I uh, first moved here. I actually lived in Hawaii for about six months. And then I moved to, uh, I think it's probably like close to the south side of Chicago for about three months. And I moved to Seattle for another three months. And then I ended up in Oregon for about four years and then moved up to Washington for about four years. So, and then after, I mean, the four years in Washington, it was about going to college in Washington. And then I started my first job at, at Boeing. So I worked there for about six years and then I quit. And then, you know, sort of like did the startup thing, Coding Dojo. That was kind of, you know, I would say the history. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, we're glad, we're glad that you end up in the West Coast because, you know, West Coast is the best coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was definitely my type kind of environment. You know, I, I don't like, you know, concrete jungles like you know Seattle is just gray and you know water. I, I really enjoy this uh, this part of the world. Yeah, I mean, coming over here at 13 year, year old from China, what was the transition like coming from China to over here? Especially because in the early part, of your years in the U.S., you bounced yeah. around a lot to different areas. Like, what was that transition yeah, I, like? Yeah, I would say it is probably it was very tough. You know, to be honest, I'm, it was very tough. And now, you know, I would say it's been about and I come here 22 years later, right? I reflect on my immigrant journey. I feel that if I use one sentence to summarize, I think America, it is the greatest country on this planet. It gives us greatest opportunity, but America is not always kind. You know, I think you have to earn your way. It doesn't matter who you are. And uh, I think that was a really tough transition because when I first come here, 
I couldn't speak a word of English, <laughs> you know, I dropped in and everything that I do, I have to use a dictionary. And then especially when I end up in Oregon, the entire town has about a thousand people. I was in actually a boarding school. It has a hundred kids and now it's only Chinese kids. And it was extremely tough and just, just it's two different cultures. When I was growing up in China, I, I was actually in a military style boarding school since I was eight. I did that for about four years and I played a professional basketball in China for about when I was 12. So that early years, I would say really set me up for success because even when I was eight, you know, I would wake up, I think it's 5.30 or 6 a.m., making my best in 30 seconds. You get graded on all the corners on your bed. And then you get up, you lined up, and then they grade you. And then we will run, do the morning exercise. And whatnot. Every single day, there's a routine. And then when I was 12, I got selected to play Chinese the basketball system because, you know, it's like kids from such an early age. So at that age, I will be, we will be training three times a day. I will get up by 5 a.m. We train at 5.30. Our practice gets done at like 7.30. I would eat breakfast and then for an hour. And then we'll go back to our dorms, take a nap. And then we'll train again after lunch at like 2 or 3. And then we'll train again after dinner. Like more like endurance, like running, like, you know, in the morning is weight training, afternoon it's basketball skills. And then in the evenings will be more about endurance training. And so, you know, I think that training really pulled out a grit into my own character, the discipline, the grit. That was extremely tough. I mean, I think that was the hardest thing I have ever done. And then coming to the U.S., I think that was a tough transition, more just a culture, the communication. I think that was what was really tough. So I would emphasize on that a little bit. It was not easy. Because it's yeah. totally different respect systems. And, you know, in China, you would never have kids making fun of you. Or, you know, even back the day when I first come here, right? Like people would call, say like, you know, call me chink, say you're gay. You know, those kind of things you just never, like today you would talk about, say that's racism, whatever, you know. But back the day when you first come, I mean, that was 2000. I mean, at that time, there was no Me Too movements. There was no, you know, this Black Lives Matter movements. Those things are just so common. You just like, you know, move on. You know, you don't, those kind of things bother you. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think like at that time, it happened so often that not a lot of people were talking about it either because we didn't really know how to respond to that. Right. And so it's like one of those things that kind of we just brushed it off. We don't really pay much attention to it. And I think that's the sad part about it. But I'm glad that you were able to kind of reflect back and think and realize that those things were happening. And that does seem really intense, like all of that training. How do you think all of that training and that discipline and just staying consistent in all of that training? How do you think that has like contributed to your role in your entrepreneurial journey? Like, do you think it has played a big part and a big role in your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, you know, I'm a very structured person. Even till today, you know, I wake up every day about 5 a.m. And then I'll, you know, everything, everything in my day is kind of timed by like, five to 15 minutes increments in the sense I wake up, I shower, I get my coffee, I go for a 20 minute walk. And then I start my emails at like 545. I make sure my emails are done by like seven o'clock. And then I start my project from seven to eight. I take my daughter to, you know, take care. And then, and then the day just starts. Right. And so I think that discipline system, I really just a grit really contribute to my success today because, you know, running a startup is extremely hard. It's, there are moments where you know, you see those press release, oh, coding to win this award, or like we raised this much money. But, you know, the psychological mental toll on yourself is probably some of the toughest things somebody have to go through. You know, I've been doing this for, uh, for like the past like eight to 10 years. It's seriously, it, it's tough. I mean, you get, you know, PTSDs and from stuff, you know, it just, it is not easy, you know? So, yeah, I can't imagine what you go through as a founder, right? I mean, we consider ourselves founders too. We talk to like almost 200 founders mm -hmm. in this podcast and the similar yeah. story persists. It's hard. It's difficult. Yeah. Right? You know, and the most successful you know, founders have structure and discipline, right? Yeah, I, I would say definitely the structure discipline will 
will help you. You know, just, just, you know, nowadays we talk about mental health, right? It just that never existed until now. It just, you know, in my stressful times, I will have like anxiety attacks, panic attacks, you know, sometime it comes on like once a week, you know, it just, I just know like, Hey, I need to relax. There's too much things going on, you know, those type kind of experiences. And, you know, with, especially if you have like significant other, like my partner, my wife, it, it's, it's super hard on both of us. I wanted to kind of jump into your entrepreneurship journey. You jumped into entrepreneurship immediately after college. I think there were a couple Mm -hmm. of startups that you had founded. One was Thinkberg. The other was Mentor 2.0. Those, I think Thinkberg doesn't exist anymore, but fresh out of college, going into entrepreneurship, what was that experience like and what did it teach you? Yeah, I think, you know, because also my father was an entrepreneur, you know, in my family, I'm the first generation that went to college. You know, my grandparents can read or write. My parents, they only have, you know, this in China. So they only had a high school education because Chinese Cultural Revolution, right? There's a whole generation of people. They never got the opportunity to go to school. I was really inspired by my father's path because when he was a successful entrepreneur back in China, I just, you know, always watch him from the side and see how he conduct business and the way how he think about business. And I was just really inspired. You know, I was just really inspired about what you're doing. And I just thought, hey, you know what? When I grew up, that's some of the things I wanted to do. I think that, yeah, I think, you know, there's also this fiction within Chinese Asian families in the sense that they're like, hey, you know, we sacrifice all this much to send you to the U.S., why do you want to work for yourself, right? Like start something that doesn't make any sense, you know? And so, and so I think, you know, there was a lot of fiction in that. But, but you know, I think, you know, it just, it's really in the sense that I did those two things. I just thought, hey, there was a need in the market. And I believe I can create something that adds value, that truly adds value. That, that was really the, the call to action. It was like, hey, I saw there was a problem. And I don't think this paper coupon was like sufficient enough to address the need of college students. Therefore, I wanted to start a platform to get all the local businesses has in like their own WordPress webpage. And I tr- we charge them a fee since they're not good at like managing web pages and have students just log on to their website to download their coupons. That was a think about idea, right? So that was really just the thing. I feel there was a need and I can do a better job. And then let's do it, you know? So, so um, that, that was the genesis of that. Yeah, I mean that's that's really really cool to hear that that Richard that story that finding the market gap finding the need and taking action especially at a young age right where it's like oh. there's so much doubt but luckily you have your parents you have your dad as a role model to kind of push you through that and I want to hear more about your journey creating coding coding dojo right because I yeah. definitely heard this company for years and years because I'm I, that my background I'm a software engineer right uh-huh. so I definitely heard of your platform and you know when you when your team reached out to me I'm like hell yeah. Like Richard, reach out to me. I'm down, yeah. you know, oh, thank you. Coding Dojo for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think Coding Dojo really holds a dearer spot in my heart because, you know, because, you know, just to share a little bit about myself, the reason why this is Coding Dojo is so special to me is because when I first came to the U.S., you know, I, I never had a resources like some other kids, right? Because if you look at the data, it says that there is a direct correlation between the average household income to the ICT score of any kid, because the more household income, the better resource it will get the more, more likely the kid will go into a better school because, you know, a property tax funded school system. So, and so, and so it's kind of like they're a correlated relationship there. And so when I first come here, you know, my parents never went to college. And so for me, it's like a brand new thing. And then I think two weeks before I took the SAT, the college counselor gave me this, like this person review, you know, I'll try it up. Like things start to curl, like in this thick ass book. Right. And they're like, oh, Richard, just study this. Right. Like you're going to take your SAT. So I look at the book. I studied it for about two weeks. 
And, uh, you know, I got 800 out of 1600 on my SAT, right? Half. And then they're like, oh, you know, take it again. You know, statistically speaking, you're going to get better scores. So I was like, okay, take it again. I got like, I think 760 out of 1600. Right. And then at that time, I applied to all, every single school in Washington. And then I got rejected by every single one of them, you know. And uh, Central Washington University accepted me based on conditional basis. You know, all the other schools thought I was pretty much retarded. Like this kid, based on score, he is not, he just, he doesn't have the cognitive function to be able to, you know, go through this academic journey, right? And the higher education journey. And so somehow Central Washington University gave me a chance. They're like, hey, you know, come to our school and see how you do. And then what happened with that was that I was not, even though they accepted me, to be honest, I was not prepared for college. You know, yeah, American high schools, what you would do, what I didn't realize was that I use my third grade Chinese math carried me all the way through high school. It's not like a joke, right? Like third grade math skills in China would carry me all the way through like a U.S. high school. And then, you know, because I played professional basketball, so I just played the basketball and the teacher always gave me an A's and B's, make sure I was able to perform. And so I did fine from my grades, but from a substance standpoint, I never had a, like, I was never like focused on my school and study, right? That was just not something I thought I had to do. And so after the Central Washington, you know, it was tough, actually, even even when I started at Central, it was like a third tier school, bottomly ranked. Like, I think at that time in the U.S. It was ranked on the, the third tier, on the bottom of the third tier. And I, my first quarter GPA got 1.7 out of 4.0. You know, that was crazy, right? I mean, it's not. And, and then the, the school wasn't like, hey, look, you know, if you do this one more time, I have to kick you out. And then talk to my mom. She's like, Richard, look, you know, to be honest with you, like with this grades, and like, you may just want to come back to China. I was like, oh man, there's no way I want to go back to China, right? So there's just no freaking way. And so I really had to shift my mentality. I was like, you know what? Basketball used to be a significant part of my life. And then instead of like my gym to be the basketball court, no, my gym is in the classroom in the library. So what I did was like, I picked a dorm that was super close to the library. So I would work, go to the, go to the classroom, work, and then just hike to the library after. So my grades, I know, went up from, you know, 1.7 to like eventually graduate with 3.5, 3.8, 3.9, whatever. Right? So I just really spent the time to focus on that. And so the coding neutral story is kind of how does that connect to that? It's the same thing, you know, back in... I mean, actually, I'll share this with somebody else. Back in the late 19, early 1980s, the people who make 12, three times the salary are the ones that can speak English in China. When China first opened doors in the late 1980s, the people who can make 12, three times the salary are the ones that speak English because they're working for multinational companies, you know, and then they can get a better pay and they have the opportunity to come to the US. And then nowadays, you look at a society, the same thing where people who can make 12, three times more is the people who can speak coding, who can speak data science, who can speak design, who can speak the languages of the fourth industrial revolution, which is ARVR data science, the under layer of the coding that's powering everything. And so that's what's so special to me because now, you know, the people that have a service are truck drivers, are, you know, barista, are Uber drivers. And these guys, uh, immigrants, we had a immigrants come here, never touched a computer from Africa and they got a software developer job afterward. So, so it's like, you know, I've been an underdog. I never had a chance. We build a platform to service other richers in the world who are black, white, white, yellow, and whatever color they might be. It's giving people the second chance so that so that their lives can be empowered to manifest what they wanted to do. So really it's like in a selfish way, it's like build a platform to to help other people who may not have this opportunity. You know, our mission is about transforming lives through digital literacy. And so, you know, that's what this is all about. It just really it's about empowering others. 
you know, just imagine you graduate from college, you got some kind of psychology degree, and then you end up being an Uber driver, a barista, and then you carry on that loan, you make paycheck to paycheck. That is extremely painful. You know, even as a immigrant, right? The value property, if we think America as a product, the value proposition of this product, it's about opportunity. It's, it's the fact that you can make it. But today, just because you have a college degree, you still get stuck. I really hope Coding Dojo is a way to proliferate and democratize opportunities and leveraging the skill sets we can provide to people. That, that's, that's the reason why this work is so close to me. That's why, you know, speaking of startups, speaking of passion, getting me out of bed every day, this, this is really the reason why. It's because of transformation we are getting able to make. Wow, that's incredible. I love the fact that, you know, you are pretty much increasing access and exposure to the tech industry for disadvantaged communities and individuals, right? And this kind of reminds me of like something that is talked about in the Asian community all the time. Like there's resources that are out there for Asian or not only Asian, but like any kid like Kumon, right? But Kumon, it costs money. And, you know, obviously the people and families who are able to afford Kumon or something like Kumon are the people who have money and disadvantaged families and communities aren't able to access resources that will be able to provide their children with better resources and education, right? But you are pretty much providing this resource to people who won't be able to afford programs that cost like $50,000 or who don't have the time to go through like four-year programs. And I think Coding Dojo, it's like much shorter than that, right? It's actually more affordable than the other ones out there. So it's just incredible what you're doing in terms of providing and increasing access to those disadvantaged communities. Yeah, thank you. You know, what we say here is that talent is evenly distributed where opportunities are not. And we even partner with Jewish Family Services where we pay refugees to actually go through a program so that we can reduce all the fictions uh, in their daily lives so we can fully dedicate the time to be able to do this. So we try to like do as much as we can to refugees and immigrants because, you know, that's my background. So I'm trying to a little bit biased towards that community as well, just trying to do the best we can to, you know, to see how we can make an impact. Amazing. So we actually went through a bunch of articles on Coding Dojo and congratulations. We saw that, you know, you had secured $10 million recently to train more software engineers. And you guys have grown so, so fast. I think within the last or within the first two and a half years, Coding Dojo's team increased revenues by 10 times and the enterprise value by 20 times. And it's just amazing how fast it has grown. That just goes to show how much of a need there was for something like Coding Dojo. I want to know what kind of struggles and I guess, you know, experiences you went through as a result of growing so fast. And how did you kind of overcome those struggles as yeah. a team? And I know earlier you mentioned like, you know, breaking down attacks. I, I do want to talk more about that because I feel like that's actually more common with founders than we think. Right. And thank you so much for putting that in the open, too, because it's not easy to talk about. But I just want to hear about your experience. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, th- I feel like, you know, for these type of kind of mental health things, that the more we talk about it, the more open I am, actually, the more, the better it gets. You know, it's kind of like the first you got to say, hey, I do have a problem. Right. And, you know, when you hear a founder say, oh, you know, I'm, I have suicidal thoughts and those type of things. I mean, that is common. I experienced it myself. I think, you know, two dimensions to this. I think the first dimension just about the growth itself. You know, I feel that running an education business, education services company, and have transformation in your mission statement is, is, is extremely hard. You know, one thing I tell my team is that every single dollar that we get from our customers is a one dollar of trust token they put into us. You know, so we can't take that lightly. And when we grow, it breaks. Like every single time we experience growth, it's just natural to have breakdowns. 
because you need a bigger infrastructure to support this new demand or this new supply or different type kind of customers as you grow. So like, you know, one of the things that I, I tell my team is that, you know, when the egg break from the inside, it's life. When the egg break from outside, it's death. You know, in the sense that we have to disrupt ourselves before the market disrupts us, before the customer disrupts us. It's extremely uncomfortable. But if we're being disciplined about having a positive relationship with the pain, of disrupting ourselves is much better than the market disrupts us. And also, you know, Jack Welchers say, when the external speed of change is greater than the internal speed of change, it's just a matter of time you're going to be dead already. Right. And so those are some of the conversations I have with my team all the time. And it's not easy, right? Because now the company is bigger. There are personalities. And, and even though, you know, I come from Boeing, so I know what politics looks like. Even I try to cut as much politics as I try to, there's still, you know, people have feelings and we got to make sure, you know, they are being valued. And so when organization structure change, processes change, you are playing into the power structures of the organization. So so somebody doesn't get emotionally get hurt, right? So I think one element is just dealing with people. And second, it, it just, I would say actually second is still just about hiring the right people. I think that's 90% of the work. I think, you know, in the early stage of the startup, you, you don't feel as much as pain in a sense that you just got to make sure you have a right product, you have a product market fit, and then you're going to start to drive traction metrics, drive the revenue, right? But as you start to get to 50 people, 100, now we are at 200, you just realize that, man, like everything is about people. Like I tell my team, they say, look, look, you know, every single one of you, actually, it's not, it's not our platform, it's the intellectual property of Coding Dojo. It's each one of you, the people, it's the intellectual property of Coding Dojo. You know, so we need to be proactive about treating our people well, understanding leadership and, um, you know, getting the right people on board. Hiring is super important, you know? And so I try to spend as much time as I can on hiring. And uh, there's one, one time, uh, one phase of, you know, a few months back, I'm probably spending about 30 to 40% of my time is all interviews, you know, because once you, if you hire the right people, it just becomes much easier, you know, culture fit, capability fit, career phase to company fit, and a certain like, you know, value fit. So those are super important. I think that's one dimension of it. Also, just, I think we experience the growth at multiple different phases of the company and the faster we grow, the more breakdowns we're going to have. It's, it's, it's like, you know, shredding a skin. It's important, but also it's making you very vulnerable. And so the key is just about, you know, iterate and pivot and, and really setting an expectation with the team about how do we overcome these things? Because, you know, people are going to mess up. We don't make mistakes. It's just guaranteed. Yeah. I mean, you said a lot, a lot of good things just now. So I just want to break that down slowly, right? I think the first really takeaway from me is you have to be able to disrupt yourself, right? And you realize that running a business, your idea might be valid for the first three years, but it won't be valid for the next phase of your career or of your yeah. company. Right. And, you know, you have to disrupt yourself. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to innovate. You have to think about like, what does the market need? What does the market want? Because it's always changing, right? It's never constant. Right. And it, when you're building a company, it's a living, breathing thing. And mm -hmm. to be honest, it, it lives and breathes after its people, after its leadership, mm -hmm. after its vision. Right. And the vision is strong. The vision is flexible and the people are committed. Like you can overcome a lot of challenges. And I do yep. agree that, you know, you have to focus on your employees because, you know, you, you want to build a culture where people are passionate about what you're trying to do. And the amazing thing about hiring good people is that you can never sort of underestimate what kind of value they can bring to the table. There's so many intangible, right? So many bright yeah. ideas that they, they can bring to the table. So really agree with everything you just said. I know Maggie wants to say a few words too. Yeah, I know that you also emphasize a lot on customer success. Uh, you mm -hmm. mentioned this a lot, customer success and treating your employees right. Did you 
come to this realization, because I know a lot of other companies, like they don't think of customer success as number one priority. They focus too much on marketing or they focus too much on growth, right? Which is a really big downfall or potential downfall. How did you come to the realization that customer success is the number one thing? Or was it something that you had already knew about this when you had started Coding Dojo? Yeah. You know, in terms of growth, I had a one-on-one chat with uh a professor from MIT and, and her name is Zinim uh, Tong. Her new book is about to come out. And she said, which is fantastic. I never heard this before. She said, Richard, look, growth is the enemy of excellence, right? Like when we take money from people, there's expectation. You know, your shareholders only expect you to give them certain type kind of return. I mean, essentially, that's what it is. They can dictate a lot of things to what you want to do. And, you know, I think every single company deals with this. How do you balance between growth to shareholders, to your stakeholders, to your product value proposition, to your customer success? There's, it's a hard balancing act. It's like you are playing a four-dimensional chess always. And even at Coding Dojo too. You know, like when we now there's a lot of people want to take a course to upskill and reskill. And how do we ensure that we are staffing up our team so that they can able to make sure we have the right career service professional, get them the job. And also, how do we ensure we have the right students that's coming in as well? You know, there are challenges we deal with internally, uh, just as we grow a company as the part of this. What makes me realize sort of like customer success is really just in the early days, right? If we can help to facilitate the process of getting people employment, we shouldn't exist as a as an organization. You know, end of the day, it's like every single organization to ask ourselves the question: What justifies our existence? You know, why do we need to be here? You know, and so I think that's a tough question to to answer, and that you have to really quantify. You know, find a way to quantify the success you are making to your customers to quantify to justify your existence as an organization. So absolutely, I 100% agree. So Brian and I, as I mentioned, we were reading a bunch of interviews, and there was this one question that we saw on an article uh, of an interview from you, and the question was asking you, "What is the one business idea that you would openly share to the public?" And you mentioned that you would advise people to get a five-star chef to have them cook you meals at your home every single day. So I want to learn about what brought you to that idea and just like share, you know, do you have a five-star chef or, you know, a chef cooking five-star meals for you every day? And why why did you say that as your business idea? Yeah, Yeah, because the reason why I was because for a period of time, I was looking at labor forces, labor force dynamics. And one of the labor force that I sort of like look into the sub audience, it was that the chefs, right? Because actually this labor force is experiencing a lot of sort of like this phenomenon of, of just like, you know, low wages, but they have a lot of skill sets. Like typically people, you graduate from culinary school, you carry a lot of debt. Those are expensive schools. And you have to start as a, you know, line chef or you start cutting stuff in the back of the restaurant, you have to work your way up, right? And so, and so the question is like, hey, are there ways to find these mismatched incentives of, and skills to be able to use a platform business to, to help one side of the platform or not? And the idea was like, hey, you know, if they're underpaid, they have the skills to, to make a higher pay, why don't we create a platform and then have, you know, just families who have, you know, both households, you know, husband and wife are both working and then just be able to call the leverage in the platform to get chefs to come and cook for you. And then it's cheaper and then they make better salary. Essentially, it's like, you know, labor force arbitrage in terms of pay and, and uh, ability. So that was the idea. Just like, I just thought it was like, hey, you know, that's that's one of the areas we can disrupt to help them to make more money, you know, and yeah. the, the, the customer gets a lot of value out of it as well. I love it. I think the 
the key takeaway here is that you always focus on areas where, you know, people go through years and years of schools that school that would cost them a lot of money. But then, for example, chefs, a lot of chefs make minimum wage. Even if yeah. they, even after they get into like a five star restaurant and they're right. a chef for that restaurant, they're still making minimum wage. And I love that you're always looking for opportunities to, you know, give more access and resources to disadvantaged communities and people. So I see that as like a common theme here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have a, I have a oh, burning yeah, miscellaneous question, Richard. I know earlier you mentioned yeah. that you played professional basketball at age 12. Are you seven feet tall? No, I'm a, I'm a six five. You're six, oh. five. Holy moly. Yeah. That's so yeah. tall. So another miscellaneous <laughs> question. I, I usually hear from my Chinese friends that people in Northern yeah. China are typically a lot taller than Southern China. Yeah. Is that true? I seriously think that might be true. That is, I mean, generalized, generalized wise, it is true. But I think these days might be different. I mean, look, I haven't been back to China since 2014. So it might be different now. But yeah, I think generalized wise, that is true. You know, oh, but wow. these days might be a little bit different. You know, so <laughs> we, we would have to see the data actually now. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. insane. You're six five. That's really really tall. So Maggie, Maggie's actually four eight. Oh wow, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have to stand next to each other one day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have to come to visit you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I am curious about one other thing. So. Coding Dojo, I mean, you guys started out in two different cities, San Jose and Seattle. Is that correct? Yep. yep. And now you guys are currently in 11 different countries. Congratulations. That's oh, incredible. There was talks or, you know, just articles about you having plans to expand to over 24 countries by the end of the year. Tell us about that and what is in the works for that at the moment. Yeah. So globally speaking, there are about 7 billion people around the world you know, 7.2 or 7.3. And there's only about, I think, 25 to 28 million software developers. So this uh, mismatch of supply and demand for tech talent, it's not just in the United States, it's everywhere in the world. We are in the fourth industrial revolution. So essentially everything is powered by software. And you see this hunger wanting to leveraging the tech skills to transform the local workforce and governments wants to leverage this to get their people more pay with this skill set. It's everywhere in the world. And, you know, if you look at a traditional, we go back to history a little bit in the outsourcing movement, right? It kind of starts out in China and then Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Malaysia, the area, Thailand. And now you are seeing it in actually a lot of work now is going to Pakistan. And now you are also seeing a lot of work in, in Africa, like Nigeria, whatever. So every single nation wants to, to build up their workforce. And and the work that we do for Coding Dojo is that we spend about the last 10 years develop our platform. What we do is that we partner with government agencies, companies, nonprofit organizations to allow them to partner with us and license our platform and content. And we'll train the trainers so that they have the instructors to be able to deliver this content material uh, to their citizens locally. Like, you know, in South America, they have the vision to uh, have 100,000 developers in the next five years and whatnot. And government pays for all of this because their ambition is that, hey, you know what, United States, you don't outsource to India anymore. We want to become your nearshoring hub for tech. And so because of time difference and languages, we can better service you. So they have this ambition to train more people locally to, to service the United States tech companies. And also just this movement you're seeing everywhere, like in Africa, the Middle East, Europe, it's, it's everywhere. So that's where Coding Dojo plays a unique role in supporting the ambition. And, you know, we license our platform and share our best practice and expertise so that they can do this themselves. Wow. Very excited for those plans. So what's next for Coding Dojo in the next, you know, five to 10 years? 
Yeah, I think for us is continue to to kind of like what we talked about earlier, right? Like, well, what's we need to disrupt ourselves again? I think we need to ask ourselves the question of well, what does education mean in the next 20 years, 10 years down the road? Well, what's the role of being a education institution? You know, and so and so I think us will continue to perfect leveraging data and our platform to continue to perfect the way how we teach different type kind of individuals to truly leveraging our platform to provide a personalized learning and just be better in service that. And also being able to close the last mile gap for, for our students from uh, graduation to employment. You know, how do we be able to close the gap closer so that right when they graduate, they already have a job lined up? Maybe that means coding dojo to, you know, have a couple projects right now we're iterating on to, to think about how do we provide that as a service at the end even better. And so those are a couple of things we we're thinking just like, hey, you know, really having the inquiry, you know, thinking about what does that mean being the education institution in the 21st century in this fourth industrial revolution really means? You know, how do we distinguish ourselves different from universities and other institutions that might not be flexible like ourselves so we can iterate and uh, do things differently and just get better? Yeah, I think what you're what you said is completely necessary. And to be honest, I feel like most engineering students would appreciate that a lot. Feel I'll be honest here. Like when I graduated undergrad and joined the workforce, I felt like I was under, kind of un, like not prepared, right? I actually looked for like a lot of these coding platforms online to prepare me. And that actually strengthened my fundamentals because now I can learn at my own pace. I think that's the most important thing, right? Because not a lot of us wake up, go to engineering class, graduate and actually really, really understand the fundamentals that we were supposed to do in the workforce. So I think that it's great that Coding Dojo is actually thinking about that because that is a huge problem, right? And, you know, you still see a lot of students nowadays as you're interviewing for technical positions, still struggling to pass the technical interviews, right? I don't think four years enough. I think everyone learns at their own pace. So I think that what you're building is completely necessary for the next generation. No, thank you. Thank you. Of course. Uh, so we do have one final question, Richard. And the question is, what advice would you give to, let's say yourself, as you're first starting out your entrepreneurial journey? Like, what is one thing the older Richard would tell younger Richard if he's restarting his journey today? Man, I would say to myself, I would say three bullet points. Do not hire cheap accountants. Do not hire cheap attorneys. And focus, focus on cash flow. Those are the three things I would, I would uh, you know, advise I'll give to myself. It, it sounds all really simple, but I'm telling you, like a great accountant versus like a cheap accountant, you can save some money on. I mean, it is day and night difference and attorneys as well. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with those two statements more. I think uh, Megan, I also made that mistake as well. Except for attorney. Attorney's great. <laughs> He's probably listening to the <laughs> podcast right now. But Nick, we love you. You're great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Richard, where can our listeners find out more about you and Coding Dojo online? Yeah, I think they can go to our, for Coding Dojo, just go to our website, codingdojo.com. And if anybody want to reach out to me, they can just Google search, you know, Richard Wong, LinkedIn, Coding Dojo, they'll find me and they can feel free to reach out to me. Yeah, thank you. Great. We'll leave all of that in the show notes of this episode. Richard, it was amazing having you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.